All right. Well, welcome, everybody. And uh, thank you for joining us here in person, and thank you for joining us online. My name is Paul Graham. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside, and we are continuing in our series in the book of Colossians. And uh, one of these days, all the technology will work. But as Luke said, God will use whatever we put out there. Um, This week you'll notice that we're going to jump over some of the verses in chapter 1. Last week we finished in verses 13 and 14 with Paul declaring the glorious knowledge that we have in the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel that we should be rooted in that knowledge, that we should be growing in that knowledge, that we should be seeking understanding, uh, learning more about for our whole lives. Specifically, he said that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the knowledge that as Christians we lean into for the rest of our lives, and we plumb the depths of that knowledge of God. And then not content with that summary in 13 and 14 of the gospel, Paul goes on for verses 15 to 23. He can't really contain himself on expanding on and magnifying the preeminence and the grandeur of the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done. But we're just going to hold on to those verses of 15 to 23 until we get to Easter, because that is a great poem or hymn. There's some debate over where Paul has that material from, whether it's a hymn that the church commonly sang or a poem that he's composing, but he waxes eloquent on the preeminence of Christ, and we're going to hang on to those verses until Easter. But if you briefly set aside that parenthetical rejoicing in the person of Jesus, then you can see that the train of thought in Colossians 1 picks up again in verse 24, so that the structure of chapter 1 roughly goes like this as you're reading it. First of all, we have an introduction and establishing the importance of the knowledge of God in the formation of the Christian life. That's what we talked about last week. Paul says, I want you to know, I have taught, you have heard, you need to understand, you've been given wisdom, it's know, know, think, read your Bible, know God, the importance of knowledge in the Christian life. And then we have that poem or hymn on the preeminence of the person and work of Jesus, which is who we are to know. And then the remainder of the structure of of chapter 1 is Paul's personal example of how he puts that knowledge to work in the kingdom of God. And that's what we're looking at today. That last section there, verses 24 to 29, is, and you can turn there in your Bibles, or you can tap there on your phones if that's what you have with you. And if you are here with us in the building today and you do not have a Bible at home, then the Bible that you see in front of you in the seat back is yours to use now, and you can actually take that Bible home with you if you don't have one. You can just, you don't even have to tell us. You can just take the Bible out the door with you without even telling anybody. Um, Preferably after I'm done preaching, but that Bible is yours to take, all right? We want you to have the Word of God so that you can follow along with us, and you know that what I'm preaching is what God has delivered to us. So let me just pray, and we'll begin uh, working through this final section of chapter 1. Father God, we thank you for your Word, 
We thank you that we're in this new series in life groups together, that we get to uh, know and understand you deeper and deeper ways as life goes on. Father, you are unfathomable, literally. There is no depth to the end of you. And we will spend eternity, those of us that know you through your son, Jesus Christ, and trust in him, we will know you and explore who you are for eternity. And you will never run out of new things to show us. Father, that's incredible. And so even here right now with our limited minds and in this broken world, we want to know you more and more. And that's what your scripture is for. That's what your Holy Spirit gives us the pleasure of doing. So I ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us now to open our minds, open our hearts, illuminate the things that you have said to us and show us deeper things about you, your son, the good news of the gospel, the Holy Spirit, and our lives spent with you. All of those things, Lord, we ask you to illuminate in Christ's name. Amen. So, as I said, after talking about the importance of the knowledge of God and amplifying the excellence of Jesus and the knowledge of him, now Paul shifts his focus of the text in order to give an example. This part of the text at the end of chapter 1 is an application of how the knowledge of God which Paul has been exhorting Christians to have, should normally play out in the life of a typical Christian and a typical church. And so Paul sets himself as an example. He sets his own life as an illustration. And remember, the Church of Colossae is a very simple, normal, everyday kind of church without any big issues going on. Paul does not have any rebuke for them. They have a good foundation of the gospel. They're just a normal, everyday church in a normal, urban center, the well-grounded, decent Christians. And Paul told these church, this regular church, lean into the knowledge of God. Start there. Get your mind and heart engaged with the study of God. And now he is saying, this is how that knowledge is going to work itself out in your life. He's going to say um, how this knowledge is brought to other people in the community. He's going to talk about what does this knowledge convey or transfer to them. And to help you understand this, Paul says, I'm going to talk a little bit about how it's played out in my life. And in some ways, the answer that Paul is going to give here uh, is a little bit surprising and scary. And in other ways, it's an answer that's filled with hope and purpose that can fill an entire lifetime with results that last an eternity. And so as Christians today, in a decent little church that's doing mostly okay, filled with average believers who have a good grasp of the gospel, I'm talking about all of you, I hope, then we should want to learn what Paul is teaching by example here. This is what we want to know, just like Paul wanted the church of Colossae to know. And what is the surprising and slightly scary implications that there are to being bearers of the knowledge of God? And what lifelong purpose does it impart to us? And what burden of expectation of service does it place on us? And to what eternal rewards and consequences does it lead? And that's what I hope to unpack for us today in the text. And so you can be looking for those things as I read Colossians 1, 24 to 29. So Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now, the first thing that you might be struck by in this text is Paul's introduction to the notion of the topic or the reality of suffering. And if you've read the New Testament several times, or you are just familiar with the teaching from Paul, when you read this in Colossians, it may not have startled you. Paul brings up suffering. Well, of course, he's in prison. Paul talks about suffering a lot. But it probably should have startled you just a little bit, because nothing so far in this letter has even hinted at suffering. I mean, so far, nothing would think that this is where Paul would immediately go. He's been talking about the glory of God in Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus, the value of the knowledge of God, and then suddenly, near the end of chapter 1, he says, by way of application, he says, now... I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And you can almost imagine like the record scratch as people are reading the letter. It's like, how did we suddenly get to suffering, Paul? This has all been very encouraging so far. You know, this has been about the gospel and the knowledge of God and the preeminence of Christ. And now you just throw suffering in here. What is it with suffering? And of course, Paul himself is in prison, and the readers of the letter know this, but what is the connection, is the question we ask ourselves, between the knowledge of the gospel and the preeminence of Christ that Paul is talking about and suffering? Well, it becomes more plain now by Paul's life and his present situation in prison in this application that there is a connection between the knowledge of God and the gospel and what we might call religious suffering or suffering for faith. And the connection is is that sharing the knowledge of Christ brings a share in the suffering of Christ. When you have the knowledge of Christ, when you know the gospel, sharing the knowledge of Christ, sharing the gospel brings a share in the suffering of Christ is the first application Paul wants to make. And this is a bit of a shock. It's a bit frightening. But Paul wants these Colossians to know the full truth and not hold anything back. And Paul wants to encourage these Colossians about the kind of religious suffering that they will expect to experience. Because as we unpack what Paul actually says about suffering, we'll see that the kind of suffering that Paul is explaining is unlike any other religious suffering that the world generally understands. It's a kind of religious suffering that you would not expect from serving any other God that the Colossians might have known before Jesus. And there are many kinds of false religious sufferings. The idea of religious suffering is not a new one. If we go back into the Old Testament to 1 Kings 18, you might remember the contest between the prophet Elijah and the 450 priests of Baal. And they went up on Mount Carmel, and there was 450 priests of Baal, and there was Elijah by himself. And they built an altar, and there was a bit of a religious showdown to see whose God could light the altar first. And so the priests of Baal, as you may remember, 
They danced until the text says they were limping around the altar, and they cut themselves until the text says their blood gushed, and they shouted for Baal to light the altar. And it, this text is really almost intended to be humorous to show how tragic the situation of the priests is. After about 12 hours of this suffering and bleeding that the priests of Baal do, Elijah says, hey, maybe you should shout louder. Maybe Baal is asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom relieving himself, or maybe he's out running errands. These Old Testament prophets, they didn't pull any punches. But The priests of Baal thought that they needed to suffer, to shout, to wear themselves out, to cut themselves, to bleed in order to get their God's attention. And religious suffering was supposed to gain the favor or action from their God. That's one kind of religious suffering that the Colossians would have been familiar with. Of course, you need to suffer in order to get the God's favor. They demand it. Today, even, Shia Muslims have a ritual called tadbir, which they cut their scalps with swords. And if you've ever seen the movie Rocky, or you possess a young child in your home, you know that scalp wounds bleed a lot. Well, they cut their scalps in order to bleed, and they do this ritual tabir bloodletting as a form of religious mourning or to amplify the grief that they're experiencing in their personal circumstances. And this is a form of religious suffering to amplify amplify grief. And if you go on in other places, even some sects in the tradition of Christianity have incorrectly adopted the practice called flagellation. And there are sects out there that call themselves the flagellants. And they whip their own backs to bleeding, to allow themselves to be nailed to a cross, to suffer as a form of penance. They believe that suffering is required in order to pay the penalty of their sin. This would be another common form of religious suffering that the people of Colossae would think, okay, I get religion, suffering. You know, if I'm going to have faith in a God, there's going to be suffering that comes with it. But all of these kinds of religious suffering are false. These are not the kinds of suffering that Paul is talking about. Is suffering supposed to get the attention of God or the favor of God? Or are we supposed to suffer in order to spur God to action? Is it supposed to add to our grief in mourning? Is suffering required as a penance for sin, as some people believe? And as we read what Paul says here, he reveals that the suffering that the followers of God will experience is nothing like any of those false forms of religious suffering that were common then and are even still common today. Let's read again verses 24 to 25 and just pick out how Paul emphasizes the uniqueness of Christian suffering. Listen how it's different. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, to which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And so we see in terms of Christian suffering, it's very different. First of all, Paul says he rejoices in his suffering, which sounds very different than the priests of Baal, who suffer as a means of gaining the attention of their God. Paul's suffering leads him to rejoice in the results, and I won't elaborate more on that here because we've covered this topic of suffering many times and in many ways before, but we will simply note here that whatever Paul has to say about suffering... 
what he indicates is that he's able to rejoice in Christian suffering. So there is something joyful or rejoicing in the end result of Christian suffering that he's talking about here. Secondly, he says it's for your sake. Paul's Christian suffering for his faith is for the benefits of believers. It's not a suffering for Paul to gain more attention from God. It's not a suffering of Paul's to gain more reward from God. It's not to serve his penance. It's not out of grief for his circumstances. Paul's suffering is actually not about him at all. Christian suffering for the knowledge of Christ and the gospel doesn't have to do with us. It has to do with others. It is a selfless suffering that is for the benefit of those around us. Christian suffering that leads to rejoicing is selfless suffering. Thirdly, he says that it is to make the word of God fully known. This is what he was called to suffer for. And here's the link. Here's the connection to Paul's opening remarks on the knowledge of God. Paul is suffering and he's rejoicing in his suffering in order that the knowledge of God or the word of God is fully known. Or as the NASB translation says, to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And so from this we see that Christian suffering, as Paul gives himself as an example of it, has a purpose in the spreading of the knowledge of God and the sharing of the gospel. And we're going to see more about that as Paul elaborates that in the text. In other words, there is a purpose to Christian suffering for suffering for the gospel, which has to do with the proclamation of the gospel and the knowledge of God. And then finally he says, and I skipped it, but I want to back up to it because it's a a big one to unpack. He says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And I skipped that middle part to save the best for last. It's perhaps the most tantalizing phrase of the whole book of Colossians. And at this point in the message, it's when I begin to regret planning to do Colossians in nine weeks because we could spend three weeks just on this verse. So what does Paul mean when he says, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. That is a crazy sentence, isn't it? When you think about it. And you guys are going to talk about it more in your life groups. And so I'm not going to unpack it fully here because you guys are going to get your brains and your hearts involved in understanding what that means in your own life. But we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean? Let me sketch out a little bit of what I think some of the key ideas are that Paul is wanting to convey. And to get at the heart of what Paul is saying here, we need to turn briefly back to look at the book of Acts in chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we have the story of how Paul became a Christian. He formerly went by his Hebrew name, Saul, and Saul was a persecutor of Christians. He hated them. He hunted them down. He bound them up. He dragged them off to jail. He beat them. It's unclear, but he may have even killed some. We don't know for sure. We know they lost their life at his hands or with his collaboration. But in the chapter 9 of Acts, Paul, or Saul at the time, has this startling encounter with Jesus who asks him a simple question. In 9, 4 to 5, we read, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
So Jesus asked Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? Why are you going around persecuting me? Why cause me to suffer this way, Paul? But wait a minute, and Paul must be sorting this out really quickly in his own mind. He's thinking, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting the church. I mean, I'm hauling Christians off to jail. I'm not hauling you off to jail. You're supposed to be dead. We buried you. But you're saying that I'm causing persecution to you. And Jesus would have answered, yeah, Saul, that's the point. I am my church. My church is me. When you persecute the church, I suffer because the church is my body. And you can see sort of the, the blinding flash of knowledge, literally in Paul's case, he's blinded by the presence of Jesus, but this blinding insight that Jesus delivers to Paul, and Paul now repeats to the church in Colossae, as he does in almost every other one of his letters as well. He says, I rejoice in my suffering because it's not for me, it's for you Christians, and even more, not only is it for you, for your sake, Christians, but you as Christians, as the church, are Jesus. You are the body of Christ, and so I suffer for Christ. And now it's just one sentence that Paul writes here, but he takes it even deeper because there's a double meaning that runs through this whole statement, and it's based on this reality. Paul suffers for the church. But Paul is himself part of the church, part of the body of Christ. That's what happened in Acts chapter 9. Saul became Paul, and he now is part of the body of Jesus. And so Paul layers in another meaning here by saying, I do my share, or I do my part, my portion, on behalf of Christ's body, the church, of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You see the shift in the language. Paul starts out by saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for your behalf. But he ends by saying, my sufferings are just a portion of Christ's sufferings, not really mine. And they are on credited to his body, the church, to fill up or to continue what remains of the suffering Christ has to do. So it starts out with Paul's suffering for the Christian, and in the same sentence, he changes it to Christ's afflictions for the church. And so to summarize some of the application of what could be lacking in the suffering of Jesus, I'll just say that we can recognize that we know what isn't lacking in the suffering of Christ. Because we know that on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Paul just spent 23 verses telling us how the work of Jesus was complete in accomplishing all that it intended to accomplish. It was successful. It defeated death. It transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So it's not lacking in effect in any way. That's not what Paul means when he says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ's afflictions are complete in their effect. But in another way, as Paul is driving at in this text, the suffering of Jesus continues. The suffering of Jesus is not complete yet because his suffering has not drawn everyone that it will draw. Jesus is now bodily seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us in his glorified body, the first fruits of the resurrection. But Paul says here that Jesus is also still bodily present in the form of his church and still suffering bodily through the suffering of his church in order to finish the work of the gospel on earth. 
bodily, by his ministers, by his workers, like Paul, like the Colossians, like me, like you. Paul says you will rejoice in your suffering because you are completing, you are filling up the remainder of the affliction of Christ to see the gospel accomplished. And in a very profound way, Jesus is suffering with and through his church. When Paul suffers, Christ suffers. When Christians suffer, Christ suffers. God suffers with his people. The gospel work that was started and finished on the cross, in effect, is still being worked out in practice in the trials of the church. God's people, being the body of Christ, work out the sufferings of Christ still for the reconciliation and salvation of the world. The purpose of our suffering is for God to be made known, for the word to be preached and proclaimed. It's for the knowledge of God and the gospel that Christians suffer. Not that our sufferings save anyone, not at all, not even a little bit but that Jesus joins us in the body of the church in the suffering that takes place for the furtherance of the knowledge of him. And I have to leave it at that because I have two more points of example to make, and I'll make them shorter. But Paul gives himself as an example of being a minister, a servant of this knowledge of God in the gospel, and he says, we will suffer by knowing what we know, And by sharing that knowledge, we will have a share in the sufferings of Christ. But it is not like any other religious suffering, as we have seen. This suffering is not purposeless. This suffering is not for ourselves. It is not to satisfy God. It is not to somehow spur God onto action. It is not suffering alone for suffering's sake. But it is and as suffering with Jesus himself. Second thing we learn about this knowledge that Paul gives as an example of himself, he says our knowledge of God in the gospel is for warning and for teaching. So Paul now gets very practical about how this knowledge of God in our union with Christ is meant to be used. First of all, he just says you're going to suffer, you're going to rejoice in your suffering, but you're going to suffer for the sake of proclaiming this word. But he says this is why you suffer. He says, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known or to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And so Paul says the use of this knowledge that he's a caretaker of is to speak it, it's to share it, it's to proclaim it. And he expands on that further down in the text in verse 28. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul says that this Preaching or proclaiming has two components, warning and teaching. And we today quite often use the words evangelism and discipleship to make the distinction that Paul is making here in his preaching. He's saying, okay, Christians, you now have this knowledge of God in the gospel. You are going to suffer to proclaim it, and it's going to be applied two ways. We're going to use this knowledge as we proclaim it to warn and to teach. We would say today maybe evangelize and disciple. And it really is a matter of our audience. Are we applying the knowledge of God in the gospel to unbelievers who are seeking to know the knowledge? Or are we applying the knowledge of God in the gospel, as Paul is here, to Christians who already know God and are learning more about him? 
And some of the times it's obvious as we proclaim the knowledge of God in the gospel who our audience is. If we're in a Bible study, we're probably on the teaching side of this. If we're at work or in our school cafeteria, we may be on the warning or evangelism side of this. We can sometimes figure out who our audience is. But at other times, as the Word of God is preached or proclaimed, it's more like what Jesus experienced with his crowds around him. Like a Sunday morning, it is a mixed group of both disciples and the curious or the seeking. It is the Word of God going forth and falling on two kinds of ears, warning some and teaching others. And churches, it's interesting, sometimes get into these ecclesiological debates, which is just a $5 word for how church runs. Um, what do you do as a church? Are we suppo- what one are we supposed to be doing? What is their pastor especially supposed to be doing? What is their mission as a church? Are we supposed to be warning people by preaching and sharing the knowledge of God evangelistically? Is that what we're supposed to be doing as a church? To reach the lost? Or are we supposed to be building up the existing believers by teaching them the knowledge of God to increase their maturity? And Paul's answer and his example to the church here in Colossae is yes. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to warn, you're supposed to evangelize, you're supposed to reach the lost and the curious and the seekers, and you are supposed to teach and build up and mature believers. Because he finishes the sentence by saying, Paul says that this knowledge that he proclaims is for everyone, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So when Paul says everyone, in the Greek he means everyone. Everyone gets access to the knowledge of God and the gospel, either for warning or for maturing. And that gives us purpose. This is the Christian purpose the knowledge of God gives us. It's the Christian purpose to our preaching and our speaking, to proclaim it to everyone, to the lost and to the saved, to warn everyone and teach everyone with this gospel knowledge that we've been given. And so that's why, by way of application, we try to do what we do here at Lakeside. If you just stop and think about this church and think about the kinds of things that we do, you will find that everything that we do in some way proclaims the knowledge of God, tries to illuminate the hope and the reality of the gospel to everyone, whether they be curious, hostile, seeking, or brand new Christians, mature, and wanting to grow. Because that's what Paul says. This is what you do with this knowledge, good little church in Colossae. This is what you do, everyday normal Christians who have this tremendous knowledge of the hope of the person of Jesus Christ. You share this knowledge with everyone. That at some point we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's the message we suffer for and that we apply to everyone. And then Paul gives another summary in this text of the knowledge. And he says, this is the knowledge that you have, that you're suffering for, that you're proclaiming, warning, and teaching everyone with. The knowledge that you have, the, the important part of that knowledge, the, the important part of that message is that it is a message, it is a knowledge of hope. Verse 26 says sort of an unpacking of what is being made known or what the Word of God is. 
It says, this is what he's proclaiming, the mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, those saints, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, it's not going to be a mystery much longer, hold on, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that's been hidden for ages. That's what he has made known to show how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is that Christ is in you. The content that Paul is speaking, he basically says, is an open secret. It is a hidden thing exposed. It is a mystery revealed. And it's the mystery that we all understand is the knowledge of the God and the gospel. That God has made known to Jews and Gentiles, in other words, to all people, the greatest treasure, the riches, Paul calls it. This is the greatest treasure of knowledge that God has made available. That God is able to dwell with his people again. That mankind may be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. In other words, there is hope of future physical glorification and presence in eternity with Jesus. That's the message. That's the knowledge bomb or the gospel seed that Paul drops on Colossians or that God has dropped on the world. One of the it's an open book, Paul says now. It's not a secret. It's not a mystery. It's not hidden. You can know it. You do know it. You can teach about it. You can proclaim it. Tell the world about it. Everybody knows that this is the mystery now revealed. Now, why is that important? Why does Paul talk about it as a mystery? And why is it so important that it's obvious now? Well, one of the cultural realities that we talked about for the city of Colossae, if you remember last week, is that this church is, in its environment at the time, there was the presence of many other religions. And specifically at this time period, there was a widespread prevalence of what was commonly called Gnosticism, or the Gnostic religions. There were many Gnostic religions, which is just a Greek word for knowledge. And so Gnostic religions are religions that are based on the idea that there is a mysterious knowledge or there are secrets to the universe that are inaccessible to ordinary people unless you are initiated or indoctrinated into the deep mysteries. Only the devout gurus of the religion might be able to grasp the secret of the Gnostic faiths or even knowledge of how it all works or who God is. And in fact, the Gnostic religions would keep those mysteries a secret. They would keep the inner workings of the priesthood uh, to themselves and secret from outsiders. And that's still going on today. I mean, you have Scientology and... I mean, there was a book that came out a while ago that was literally called The Secret. You know, that there's some sort of secret out there that you need to know, and if you know the secret, then you can make it all work, and you can get invited into the secrets of the religion. And so the way Paul writes here, he's very deliberately countering the notion of Gnosticism or Gnostic religions. He's saying... There is no secret knowledge in Christianity. The knowledge of God and the good news of the gospel is free for everybody. Nobody's trying to keep anything a secret here. We're not keeping any secrets. God isn't keeping himself a secret from you. God has made everything clear to you and easy to see in Jesus Christ. 
Here's the big secret you're free to tell everybody, that God has made everything right through Jesus, and everything and everyone in the world has free access to God through Jesus. Ta-da! No secret, no mystery, just life-saving knowledge. And Colossians, you are free to share it. So forget about the Gnostic religions. Forget about the Illuminati or the Freemasons or whatever secret society you think you're going to need to join to get initiated into. There is no Da Vinci Code of the Bible. There's no super special believer's knowledge. Paul says, we all have it, and we're all equal in it. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise. Whoops. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus says, you know, The wise out there outsmart themselves, thinking that there's some kind of special knowledge that they need. But the gospel that Jesus revealed is so simple that even little children can understand it. God has made it so simple a child can know. You can be right with God forever and never have to worry about reconciling yourself for your guilt or your sin again because Jesus has accomplished it all on the cross. And trusting in Jesus reconciles you with God for eternity. That's it. That's the big secret. And yet there are people out there who think they are so smart and constantly miss the simplicity of the gospel that God has given to mankind. So just remember that in this text, Paul is setting himself as an example of the application and outworking of the glorious knowledge of God and the gospel. Remember, he's telling this nice little church in Colossae, this is my prayer for you, growing in this knowledge of God, and look at how it will work out for you. When you are united with Jesus in the knowledge of of the gospel, you will suffer, but you will rejoice in your suffering for the sake of the body of Christ. You will rejoice that you are a caretaker, a steward of this great knowledge. And as a caretaker, you will preach, you will proclaim this knowledge, you will share it with everyone warning those who don't believe and teaching those that do. Notice in verse 28, he shifted from I to we. Right? He said, I do this, I preach, I'm a caretaker. And then he says, him we proclaim. He pulls tricky again there. He, he, he kind of sucks them in right there at the end. He, he shifts what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, I'm doing this, but we do this. This is a purpose that you, little church in Colossae, are all caught up in along with me. It's not just my job. We do this proclamation. That's the Christian purpose of suffering. It's the Christian duty towards being caretakers of this knowledge. Knowledge of a glorious Savior, a suffering servant, a victorious king who's made peace with God possible. Our hope for future glory. It's not a mystery, Paul says to this church. He says, you have this knowledge. And he says it to us. We have this knowledge. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with that knowledge that you have? The knowledge of God and the gospel is our life purpose. It's what we pour ourselves into by the strength of our union with Jesus. Paul sums up his life example to the church in verse 29. He says, all of this that I just gave myself as the example for, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is a lifelong purpose that we have. 
It's not pointless. It's not meaningless. It's not purposeless. The suffering that we do for the knowledge of the gospel is to present everyone mature in Christ, and it is a lifelong purpose. Not that we do in our own strength, but that because we are the body of Christ, his energy, his power works in us to do. That's Paul's example of how we put this knowledge to work. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's example. After 23 verses of proclaiming you and talking about the knowledge of you and the preeminence of Jesus, he suddenly says, I. All of a sudden, all the attention seems to be on Paul, but we realize that Paul is not actually taking our attention off of Jesus. When he points the, Col- the Colossians to himself, he's really just pointing them right back at you again. He says, I but only I as a servant, only I as a steward, only I as a caretaker of the glorious knowledge of God, only I as a sufferer who suffers for Christ. Father, may we take this example to heart, examine our own lives, so that any time when we take the attention off of you for whatever reason and get the attention on ourselves, that it would never just be about us, but it would only be about us as we redirect that attention back to the knowledge of you. Father God, we thank you for the knowledge of you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the preeminence of Jesus. We thank you that we are your servants. We thank you for this lifelong purpose you've given to proclaim, to warn, and to teach the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.